I'm going to begin reading Psalm 50. You can follow along if you'd like to, or just listen. Psalm 50 says, The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, He does not keep silent. Before Him is a devouring fire, around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is a judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. The world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High God. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes, or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother or slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay a charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his Way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. It's a very good summary of what we read about last week, isn't it? God is above us. God is more powerful than we are. God expects things from us. He doesn't necessarily expect the things that we think. He demands our compliance. He deserves our compliance. And if we don't, there are consequences to that. And if you were here last week, you recall that we looked at Romans chapter 1, a very difficult chapter. Let me just summarize real quickly. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the downfall of all mankind, the downfall of us individually, is that we know God, but we fail to honor Him and to thank Him. Nature reveals God to us, as we heard about in Psalm chapter 50, we ought to know better. Indeed, we do know better. We are held accountable for it because nature reveals who God is. And yet, knowing that, we fail to honor and we fail to thank Him. And when we do that, that leads to futile or nonsense or silly thinking and a dark heart. As a result of that futile or nonsense or worthless thinking and a dark heart, 
We think we're really wise when we're actually foolish. And once we move past that stage, we begin to exchange God for idols, and we talked about what those are. And eventually, as we continue to exchange God and think futile things and have foolish, dark hearts, we are given up, we saw that mentioned three times in that chapter, to the lusts of our heart. We noted there's a special emphasis on immoral sexual practices. And eventually, we're given over, as the scriptures say, to a debased, or maybe your translation says a depraved mind, and then we are filled or saturated with evil. And as a result, the Bible tells us we begin inventing new ways to be evil, and we celebrate it, the most evil among us. This is where we are at in our society today. These are the things that we are dealing with. These are the struggles that we have. When we look around and wonder what is going on, it is very evident and obvious that this is the problem. We do not honor or thank God for who He is. We must have a proper view of God, including those of us who profess to know Him. And I say that because if we don't understand who God is, how can we give Him honor? How can we thank Him? So let me begin by asking this question. And yes, that was all a lead in and summary. I apologize. So let me begin by asking this question today. What comes to your mind when you think about God? What comes to your mind when you think about God? I'm going to give you just a minute longer. What is it that comes to your mind when you think about God? I'm going to read a quote from an author who I really like, who kind of answered this question. He says, It is my opinion that the Christian conception of God is so decadent, and he doesn't mean good in that word, so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually constitutes for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. Let me read that again. He says, In my opinion, the Christian conception of God, what we think about God, is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. Perhaps you'd be interested to know that he wrote this in 1960. Ouch. If it was true then, boy, oh boy, is it true today. So what comes to your mind when we think about God? Our view of God impacts everything that we do, everything that we believe, and everything that we think. How we view the Almighty God impacts everything about who we are, everything that we do, and everything that we think. 
If we have a high view of God in that we hold God in the proper esteem, that we think of him as we ought to, then we will behave and act and think and do and live as we ought to. If we have a low view of God, then we will not do those things. So our view of God is everything to us. And as we just saw, the downfall of humanity in Romans chapter 1 is the result of failing to honor him and failing to thank God for who he is. But without the proper view, we cannot truly do that. Now understand very carefully, I fully believe that we can be saved individuals and still fail in this way. You can have experienced the power of God, you can know the power of God, and fail to understand God as you ought to. And so we must be very, very careful. And if we as believers are failing to properly honor and thank God because we have a poor image and view of who He is, is it any wonder that we as Christians are failing over and over again? I'm going to be about as transparent as I was last week. (laughs) Do you wonder why you struggle with sin? Do you have the proper view of God? Do you wonder why you cannot share your testimony properly with someone else? Do you have the proper view of God? Do you struggle to control your anger? Do you have a hard time keeping regular commune, communication and communing with God? Do you have the proper view of God? Do you understand the scriptures? Are you more interested in the world than spiritual things? Can you or do you even hear what God is actually telling you? All of these questions and more go back to the same premise that I hope I am trying to make here. Do you know God the way that God actually is? Or are you making something up about God? And so the goal for the next few weeks, and I really don't like doing series sermons, so we'll see how this works. But the goal for the next few weeks, because there's no way I could ever pack it into even just a few Sundays is to understand who God is. Understanding that failing to honor Him and thank Him is the downfall of our society and leads to everything that we ought to hate. We must back up and say, okay, who is God and how should I respond to Him? Because understanding that properly leads to proper honor, leads to proper thanking, and leads to a relationship with Him. So we must be personally committed to know Him, as we talked about in Romans chapter 1, and then to honor and thank Him for who He is, not who we have made Him to be, or who we have assumed that He is. So I'm just going to label these a series of concepts. And so if you're taking notes, this is entitled the sermon today in the series, A Proper View of God, Part 1. Of, I have no idea. We'll finish when we finish. A Proper View of God. Concept number one. 
God is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. It means we can't even really comprehend or think or understand what God is, who He is. Now that may seem contradictory to everything I just said, doesn't it? We have to know who God is. We have to have the proper image of God, yes. But we also have to understand at the very beginning that God is incomprehensible. We cannot understand Him. We will have to do our best with the minds that we have, with the language that we have, to try to barely scratch the surface, to have the proper view of Him as good as humanly possible. Because we truly cannot comprehend Him. And I think this is the beginning of our low view of God. Somehow, whether you've really ever thought through it or not, we think we understand Him. We think He's something that we can understand, and He's not. He is so high above us, and I don't mean high as in the sense of distance, and the Bible doesn't usually either. It's talking about high as in great, as in immeasurable. He is so different from us that he is utterly incomprehensible. And that must be where we start our understanding of who God is. And sometimes we say things, God is like this, or God is like that. But we must be very careful that we do not use that word like as an adjective. As in, God is the same as, or God is similar to this. Because he's not. And so I will try to not say these things. And if I do, to say them in the most correct way possible. To understand that while God is completely incomprehensible, he's like this. And we have to do that because for us to even begin to understand We have to have something to compare him to, but yet remember that he is not like, as in the same, those things. This is a very important thing to distinguish. And to give you an example, turn with me to the book of Ezekiel in the first chapter. In the book of Ezekiel, the first chapter, We're going to do our best here and understand that when we try to describe God, we talk about who and what he is, it is merely our attempt. Ezekiel, and I won't read the whole chapter, said he saw a vision of God. And he began to try and describe that vision. And boy, did he struggle. Let me just read. I'm going to skip around chapter 1, okay? I'm going to start in verse 5. And from the midst of it, hold on, before I do this, I forgot. Let me, I'm going to point out, I'm going to try to emphasize with my hands, but listen carefully for the following phrases. Like, an appearance as, seemingly, Because these are qualifiers, because Ezekiel has no idea what he is looking at. 
He is trying to describe, because God told him to, what he's seen of God. And the only thing he can do is say, as, like, the appearance of, 30 plus times in one chapter. So listen to verse 5. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And there was an appearance that they had a human likeness. He doesn't know what he's seeing. Why? Because God is incomprehensible. He is trying to use his feeble mind and our feeble words to describe something that can't be understood and cannot be described. And if we had a proper view of God, if we respected God the way we would, we would realize that God is this incomprehensible. And he knows that he's using words that will fail him. So he's saying it's like this, but you can see within this text, he doesn't know and he doesn't understand. Look at verse 16. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of burl. And the four had the same likeness and their appearance and construction as it were a wheel within a wheel. Now listen, I've heard sermons the whole time about these wheels. And I've read about them for years from different people who studied and studied and studied. And it's like, here we're going to use this word, they never considered that Ezekiel had no idea what he was looking at and was just trying to describe God's greatness somehow. But we get all wrapped up in the words, don't we? We spend books after books trying to describe these wheels. And what do they become eventually? They become idols. Because we fail to realize that what we're trying to do is describe something that's indescribable and incomprehensible, not trying to teach us something special about this wheel that's inside of a wheel that turns. We've missed the very essence of who God is, is and what he's trying to tell us. And you will see in this, as Ezekiel gets closer to the very throne of God, his words get even more vague. Watch this. Turn to verse 26. If you want a fun activity, go back through with a highlighter or a pen and start underlining every time he uses this phrase. And then keep reading and then read it again because you'll miss him and you'll miss him. I spent like 20 minutes doing this. Okay, verse 26. As he gets really close to God, his words get weaker. And above the expanse over the heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness with a human appearance. And the upward, I'm sorry, and upward from that had the appearance of his waist. I saw were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Let's stop there. I, I lost count just in those few verses. But understand that when Ezekiel came face to face with the presence of God, whatever that is and however it is manifested, the closer he got, the more he could not describe anything. 
Well, it was looked kind of like a person, but it wasn't. It was kind of like a waste, but it wasn't. And below whatever was kind of the waste was some kind of fire. Okay. Look at his response. Very end where I stopped. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. We call that worship, don't we? Thanksgiving. You think he gave God all the honor and thanksgiving he was supposed to? Guarantee you. Because he came face to face. We use that phrase loosely. His face to something. His face toward God. And he realized he is nothing. He realized he cannot describe the indescribable. And the only proper thing to do is what? Fall to your face. And so we wonder sometimes why we have no power in our gospel. Why we have no power in the message that we share with those who are lost. Because we, I believe, do not understand the proper place of God. And we do not carry that forward into our everyday living and into our conversations. I can assure you of this. The day that I was finally saved... As best as I can, I knew that I had messed up. And I fell on my knees, trembling, begging for forgiveness. Because as best as I could on this side of earth for that period of time, I knew exactly what Ezekiel was dealing with. I have no idea what's going on here, but something's wrong. God help me. We must be very careful not to describe the creator by the created. See, that's what Ezekiel was careful of. That's why he used these phrases more than 30 times trying to describe God. Because he knew that to say that the throne was jasper or that it was a rainbow or that it was fire wasn't accurate. It's like fire, but I don't know what it is. It's like a waste, but I'm not sure what it is. So when we think of God, we must not use our things, this world, the things that he made to describe the one who made it. So that's not to hold God in the proper reverence. So where does this leave us? Indescribable, incomprehensible. Because we are creatures who only understand the bounds of time, the bounds of physical space, because we only can comprehend what we can see and touch and taste and feel, we tend to fall back on that. So we want to measure, understand, and control. And we do that with everything. And to some degree, that's a part of who we are, isn't it? We were put in the garden to what? To tend and to keep it. We were given dominion over the things. And so what do we do? We named them. We numbered them. We controlled them. That's part of who we are. But that is not what God is. And if we are not careful, we will try to do the same to God. We will try to control him. We will try to break him down so that we can understand him instead of reveling in the fact that we don't understand him. The problem with trying to understand something and trying to control something is it leads to comfort and complacency. If you get really used to handling something that's dangerous and you feel like you know it and have control of it and eventually you get careless with it. I don't know if anybody's ever operated with heavy machinery 
or if any of us have driven while texting, somehow we think that's you know possible for us to do. We get comfortable and complacent. I think that's where we're at with God. We've tried to reduce God to something we can understand, and therefore we feel comfortable with Him and complacent. God's this over here. Let me read you another quote from the same author. The glory of God has not been revealed to this generation of men. The God of contemporary Christianity is only slightly superior to the gods of Greece and Rome, if indeed he is not actually inferior to them, in that he is weak and helpless while they had power. Now understand, just in case you missed it, he's not agreeing with this. He's saying this is in fact the state of our Christian religion. That we have taken our God, who is superior, who is incomprehensible, who made everything, and made him probably even lower than the gods of Rome and Greece. Let's think about this for a minute, because you may say, oh, no, 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 no. You remember the Greeks and the Romans? They would sacrifice their own children to keep God happy. Now, he's a false god. But they were so fearful of God, they were willing to kill and murder their own children to try and get favor from God. Well, they're false gods, and our God is real. Now, am I suggesting we sacrifice children? No, absolutely not. Why? Because he's not told us to. In fact, he's told us not to. But what has God told us to do? What are you doing? You see, this is the real crux of the issue. If we really felt like God was powerful, would we do what he told us to? I'm going to be really mean, especially because I'm going to say something critical, and it doesn't apply to most of you. I'm going to say it anyway. I estimate last night we had around 100 people here. It's really hard to count. There are people everywhere. We have 45 today. Actually, like 48 if you've come in. But let's make that even worse. You ready? Only 31 of the people who are here today were here last night. We had two shy who went on a hayride last night that are back today. And that was only about a fourth to a third of the people who were here. I know that some of you invited friends who attend other churches. But let me ask this question. And again, I know I'm talking to people who are here, so it's not really fair. But use it as a thought process. If many were willing to sacrifice their time to come and have fun last night, are they willing to sacrifice their time to gather and worship today? Again, the Romans and the Greeks believed in their gods, and they believed they were so powerful that they would sacrifice their own children. So where's everybody today? You can go too far down this road, I think. 
to the point of mental exhaustion and concern. I'm not here to tell you that you must be here every Sunday, every time the doors are open. You must be here early. You must be happy, etc., etc. I understand. We go on trips. We have family obligations. Some of us have to work. Some of us, as I mentioned last night, are not here today because they're attending other churches. The point I am trying to make is, do we really believe God is who he said he is, and do we act that way? Because if the Greeks and Romans were so afraid that God would hurt their crop, that they would kill their own children, and we won't even show up for church. That's why this author says, the glory of God has not been revealed to this generation of men. The God of contemporary Christianity is only slightly superior to the gods of Greece and Rome. Why? Because we don't act like he cares. Now, am I telling you that all those who weren't here last night are going to get struck down by God? No. Am I telling you that to some degree we should really consider this in how we live? Yeah. If God is at all comprehensible, do you think he's happy with you? Hmm. So God's incomprehensible. Sorry, I'll get off my rant. God is incomprehensible. So what should we do? Job asked this question. Well, not Job himself, but one of Job's friends. Chapter 11, 7 through 9. I'm going to be very brief. You can turn there if you'd like. Job 11, 7 through 9. Can you find out the depth, the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? And it is deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Given our own nature, we cannot find out the incomprehensible. But through Jesus Christ, in him, by Christ, God affects complete self-disclosure and shows himself not to our reason, but to our faith and love. I told you last week, I'm a highly logical, very reasoning person. The problem is, that's not how God chooses to operate usually. Oh, he uses logic and reason. There is no doubt. Those are some of the things that God is. But God is love and God is knowledge. We can know him through experience. Faith and love in him. Faith is the thing that gets us to knowledge. And love is the thing that carries us over to experience. I preached a sermon on this a number of years ago, and I still think it's true today, and I still think it's something that separates and should separate all Baptists, but definitely separates many Baptists and many in the Christian faith. We have a God who is experiential. You experience God. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. And while he is incomprehensible, he's not sitting so far off that he can't be felt. And he's not so far away that he won't interact with us. There is an experience to living your faith in him. He reconciled us to him by faith and love. And we could know him. We cannot describe the incomprehensible, but we can know it. 
Think about what I just said. We cannot describe the incomprehensible, but we can know it. Let me just give you a very easy example. Someone describe love for me and then tell me if you can know it. Which one's easier? To know it or to describe it? To know it. To know that you're loved and that you love someone else. It's hard to describe. In fact, scientists don't like it. Why? Because you can't see, touch, taste, or feel it. But you can sure experience it. God's the same way. We can spend our entire life trying to explain God, but the reality is He is something that we can experience and He is desiring to be experienced. So when we ask this question, what is God like? If we are asking what is God like as an in Himself, what and who He is, we cannot answer that question. If you were hoping you'd come the next few Sundays and answer it for you, sorry. But if you want to say, what can we know about God that he's disclosed to us, that we can know. And that we should know. And we should make an effort to not only comprehend it, but more importantly, to know it. God has revealed certain things to us, and it is our uh, duty, our job to pursue that, to understand that, to experience that, not by reason, but by love and faith, and everything that we are. So number one, concept one, God is incomprehensible. Number two, and I promise I only have two today. You're already looking at your watches, I'm sure. I just got done saying we can't really comprehend or describe God, but I'm going to give it a try. Not from my own words, but from his. There are some things that we know about God that are true. These are commonly called attributes. Well, what is an attribute? An attribute of God is whatever God has revealed as being true of himself. An attribute is whatever God has revealed as being true of himself. Let me ask you a question. Does God possess attributes we don't know anything about? Does God possess attributes that we don't know anything about? Let me give an example of an attribute. God is love. So does he possess those attributes that we don't know about? Well, I just said God's incomprehensible. So I tend to think, yes. Do you see how this comes together with a proper view of God? If I was to say everything that God is, I could somehow know. Is he incomprehensible? Not anymore. We only know about God what he has revealed to us. And I guarantee you he hasn't told us everything. God is beyond what we could even think or imagine. Go back to Ezekiel. He is like this, something like this. So God has told us some things about himself. He has told us some of the attributes that are true of him. But I can't imagine that we have the ability to know all of them. And so if, hint, hint, in between now and next week, you start studying the attributes of God and you see someone who said, there are seven attributes of God, just laugh and say, you don't understand what you're talking about. 
because you cannot enumerate the attributes of God. You with me? That's failing the first concept. God is incomprehensible. So God possesses attributes that he has revealed to us. How has he revealed them? Three ways. In nature, by scripture, and in Jesus Christ. So there are things we can look around the world and tell about God by the way the world is created. There are things we can read in the scriptures that tell us about God by the things that are written down for us to read. And we can know other things about him by Jesus Christ. Those are the three ways that we know about him. And as we begin to look at these, I want to caution us, these should not be taken lightly. This should be a lifelong pursuit to know God. And because he is incomprehensible, there's never a finish line. And we must be careful as we do this to not think about the creator as one of his creatures. Let me give you an example. We, all of us, are made up of certain traits, of certain characteristics, of certain qualities, and of certain temperaments. But these all vary from time to time. A very patient man can at times be very impatient. God doesn't change like that. Does that make sense? He's not impatient and patient. He doesn't go between variations. He simply is. And that's part of what's incomprehensible. Because all we know is a variation of temperaments. Maybe you would even say today, well, man, this weekend last seemed a little more intense, maybe even angry. I listened to my message from last week and I felt like I was angry. I wasn't really angry, just in case you were confused. I was impassioned. I was emboldened. I was burdened more than usual. The point I'm making is God cannot be impassioned, emboldened, or burdened more than usual. He simply is. And that really takes time to sink in. God's characteristics, the things that are true of God, do not vary. We must remember that God is neither made or created or begotten. But as one of the early church creeds simply said, proceeding. And I like that. We'll get in probably next week to where God came from and where he's going. But the answer is, I guess you could say loosely, nowhere and nowhere. God exists in himself and of himself. He is not parts, but a single unitary being. He is not made up of traits as we are. He is not the... He is not the perfect harmony of traits, but the absence of parts. Think about traits that we have. Um, loving, and to use a biblical word, we'll say wrath. Is God like a certain percent love and a certain percent wrath? No. No. He is both in one. 
When you come before the judgment seat on the very end of day and you come before God, he's not going to have to say, well, normally I'm really uh, judgy, really wrathful, really vengeant, but today, now I'm going to choose to love you more than I despise your sin. That's not accurate, but that's how we view God. God is not a judge who will sit on a seat and have to decide whether to show mercy or whether to show justice or whether to show love because God is love, justice, and mercy equally as much in one single being. But yet we boil God down to what we know, to what we understand, and we somehow think, well, God's going to, you know, he's going to have to decide, well, I think today justice for you. No. He's always just, but he's also always love. He's always wrathful and vengeful, but he also always is mercy. This is the part I'm trying to get to. We do not understand this. And when we begin to describe some of these traits, because he is love, we can lose sight and use our own minds, our own weak minds to try to understand it and then fail to really understand the incomprehensible. God is not a part. He is not more this than that. He is the absence of parts. He is a single, solitary, combined person. And there is no contradiction. There is no contradiction. You see, if I got up here today and told you that I loved you, and then a few seconds later told you that I hated you, you would say, no, 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 there's a contradiction there. But there isn't with God. How does that work? I don't really know. But I know that it's what the scripture says is true. You with me? How can God love us to the point he will send his son to die for us and yet condemn us to hell? And over and over and over again, Preachers and individual people not being able to reconcile that those two things can be simultaneously true will choose to emphasize one over the other. Well, God would never send someone to hell because God is love. Yes, God is also just. And while we can't understand that, it's the same thing to God. There is no difference. He is not one more than other. He simply is. And these are things that are him. Attributes, as we will describe them over the next few weeks, are not a part of God. It is how and what he is. Now, let me qualify the what. It is what he is as far as our reasoning minds can understand. Because God is without limit. So I'm going to tell you, and we're going to look at some of these attributes of God, and I'm going to tell you that it is part of God, it is how he is, and to as much as we can understand what he is. But the reality is, as 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. I'm going to fail Every time I stand up here and try and tell you what God is like. Every time. Because I can't do it. The things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. God only knows himself. 
And so we should spend our entire lives trying to know him. As we study attributes, remember that they are what we know to be true of God. They don't define him. They're not limited. It's just what we know about him. And he does not possess them as qualities, as I pointed out earlier. They are a single solitary point of who he is. I also want to point out now, and I'll repeatedly point this out. These are not things that God has, but things that he is. And the scripture makes us abundantly clear, but we miss it over and over again, and we really shouldn't. It's not that God has love. It's not that God has mercy or God has grace. The Bible says that he is love. He is truth. He is grace. Because you see, if he had these things, then it would all be parts making up a whole. But he, in fact, is. And when you read your scripture, you will see that over and over and over again. Put it in your mind and start marking it as we go through scripture. God is love. God is truth. God is justice. God is beauty. God is all of these things. It is not these things making up God. Because when we think they're things making up God, they can become what? They can become idols to us. We can spend all of our life trying to pursue the good, not realizing that God is good. We can spend all our lives building up truth, not understanding that God is truth. We can spend all our lives trying to pursue the beautiful and failing to remember that God is beauty. If we expect to honor and thank God rightly and avoid the downfall of Romans 1, then we must make an effort to grasp the incomprehensible, to know his attributes. If we're going to properly honor and thank him, we must know who he is. If we're going to be successful in sharing the gospel, we must know who he is and have a proper reverence, thankfulness, and honor for him. If we're going to be successful in our prayer lives, we must know who he is. I would dare say if we want to be successful in any endeavor in life, whether spiritual or otherwise, we must know who he is and have the proper honor and thankfulness, and that word really means worship, of him. Too many people have gone through too much of their life Never truly asking that question. Never truly focusing on who he is. And just pretending that they know. And I'll just add in for all those who were able to come on Sunday night as we finished our book. This really goes along well, doesn't it? Reframing what we thought we knew about God. Because we packaged him in this little box. And said, well, I know these things. I'm going to put God inside of you. And I'm not going to let you out. I'm going to control you. And while we would never actually admit to that, our thoughts and our actions betray us. Our behavior betrays us, and our thoughts do. If we want to honor him and thank him and avoid that downward fall of society in Romans chapter 1, that we must put forth great effort to understand that which cannot be understood and to know him. 
going to read one more quote. I know I've been kind of quote heavy today. It says, The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. Now, her being the feminine reference to the church, which is scriptural. So it says, the heaviest or greatest obligation upon the Christian church, those who hear me today, who are believers, the heaviest obligation we have, says this author, is to purify and elevate our concept of God until it is once more worthy of Him and worthy of who we are called to be. Wow. When we have a low view of God, not only do we bring him down, we bring ourselves down. Because why? Because we are the image of God. You want to have a proper view of ourselves? You want to have a proper view of what we do in our lives? Then have the proper respect and view for God. If you want to have power as a church, then have the proper view and image of God. If you want to have the Holy Spirit have power in your life to do the things that are hard to do, to make the impact where it's needed, then you must have the proper and correct view of God. And if you don't want any of those things, but you simply want to be on the right side of God, then you must have the proper image and view and respect of Him. The Romans and the Greeks were so willing to do it, they'd sacrifice their children. Well, literally, thank God that's not what he wants. What does he want? He's already told us. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. To love your neighbor as yourself. To love justice, mercy. I'm going to close with this last verse. It was the, you might have missed it in Psalms 50. You thought that I was one like yourself. That's verse second half of verse 21. Do you think that today? Really ask yourself that question. Do you think God's like you? It might be very tempting to say no. Evaluate your behavior. Evaluate your actions. Evaluate your heart the one that tends to be dark and wicked, that lusts after things, evaluate where it's at and ask this, answer this question. You thought that I was one like yourself. Are you treating God like you treat other people? Or are you treating him like the incomprehensible person that he is? Are you treating him with the proper attributes not that he makes up these things, but that he is these things as a whole defined person. Or are we treating him like another one? This is a vital question for us to answer. And one that will take time and effort. Hmm. Raise your hand if you have time this week to stop and think about who God is. 
Some of you are lying. Either direction. Raise your hand if we should stop and think about God this week. It's a little, little better there. Will you? Will you walk out of here? The sooner I get done, the better. I know. And instantly forget everything I said. And go back to whatever preconceived notions you had of God, acting like none of this matters. Will you walk out of here and say, well, <laughs> pat myself on the back. It's a good thing I showed up today. All the other people didn't show up. Woo! Will you be satisfied with that? Do you think God's satisfied with that? Will you really change? I don't know what to encourage us with. I don't know what to recommend. I mean, I could stand up here and say, well, join me in spending five minutes a day thinking about God. And that seems completely trivial. But you know what? If that's all the place you can start, then at least do that. Let's really lean into this. Let's really get ready for next Sunday. Let's really think about who he is. Let's sit around and think about something we can't understand. When was the last time you did that? You want to get ready for next week? Think about eternity. Like, really try this week. Don't listen to a song. Don't even read a book. I told you, creation will tell us who God is. Go out at night or in the morning, look at the sky, and think about eternity. We use that word flippantly. There's nothing that's eternal except for him. We use the word incomprehensible to describe things we don't understand. That's an improper use of the word incomprehensible. Incomprehensible means something we cannot comprehend, not that you don't understand. I can say all I want to. I don't comprehend math. But the reality is I could if I tried. I'm misappropriating that word. So when we say God is incomprehensible, we really mean it. When we say that God is eternal or infinite, we really mean forever. Man, if we really understood that, how would we view God? And when we really viewed God correctly, how would we behave? I guarantee you we wouldn't look the same. I don't want to look the same. Well, I could keep going, but I'm not going to. I think you see where I'm trying to head. I hope you see where I'm trying to head. Any thoughts before we close?